tonight, caught on video from Eric Garner to George Floyd, how technology and social media shaped the Black Lives Matter movement and the fight for social justice in America. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Ganscony Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Eric Garner. The shocking images of their deaths captured on cell phone video catalyzed the modern Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that opened people's eyes to racial injustice and changed some laws across the country. At the same time, it's a terribly sad reality that were it not for the simple fact that someone pulled out a phone, their deaths would likely have gone largely unnoticed. The cell phone in the hands of ordinary people changed everything. But this is not the first time in our history that technology has played a part in America's long struggle against racism. In fact, a new book argues that technology has always been a part of that struggle, going as far back as the Reconstruction era. The book is called Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. Joining us now to talk about the book as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on justice, poverty, and economic opportunity in America. It's co-authors. We're delighted to invite in with us. First, Mark Lamont Hill, who is a well-known journalist, author, news host, and Temple University professor. And also Todd Brewster, in addition an acclaimed journalist, a college professor, and the author of several best-selling books on American history. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Thank you. So let's start with the, the question that is often asked of authors, and the two of you are prolific writers on a wide array of topics. So my question would be, and to both of you, and Todd, I'll ask you first, why then join together on this book, and why now? Well, I would say that, that uh, the reason that we decided to head off onto this subject was because it just seemed to be in the air. I mean, there, you know, the journalists like to uh, tackle those things that are sort of uh, like dissonance that's happening at, at, at any time. And the dissonance right now is how to understand what's happening in our country over the past few years and the way that it's being told to us through technology, the combination of those two. And we've had a real racial reckoning that's happened. And, and it's been driven by technology. It's been driven by what the the cell phone camera, the uh, um, uh, social media, um, uh, the internet, um, uh, technology in general has done uh, to be able to communicate this story. Mark, how about you? What's what's the genesis for for your involvement and also for you and Todd joining forces for this? Yeah, you know, I'm always trying to understand a moment. I'm always trying to make sense of how we as a nation uh, and oftentimes we as a black community are arriving in a particular space. Uh, the death of, jo- of George Floyd, uh, the public spectacle of his death, the public outrage, the protests, the policy, all the things that emerged 
in the aftermath of his of his murder uh, needed to be documented. It needed to be chronicled. But I think my job as a scholar and as a social critic is to not just chronicle what happens. There's great outlets for that. There's 24 hour cable news, there's newspapers, all sorts of stuff. But to also offer some sort of deeper analysis to render some sort of counterintuitive claim about what's going on so that people can see connections across time and space so that people can understand relationships and institutions and power dynamics. That's, that's the ideal goal for me whenever I think about a book project. Uh, but I also understand that my own sort of orientation is to think about things in the present moment and to drill down or really not even drill down, but to cut across these different areas. And so knowing Todd so well and reading Todd's work very closely and carefully, and he really is uh, one of the most important and significant and thoughtful and gifted uh, historians of, of, of America right now. And so to have someone who can give me the sort of historical perspective at the same time that I'm analyzing these racial discourses and these social and cultural pieces, we, we combine those things together. And I think we have an ability to think widely and deeply uh, about this issue in a way that not only opens up new understandings of, about the particular cases we talk about in the current moment, but allow us to understand this as a long journey, a long historical trek toward uh, racial justice, hopefully. I'm gonna tell you, I've read the book. It, it's an exceptional work. Um, it, it's, it's compelling, it's thought provoking, it's informative. Um, I, I mentioned to you too beforehand, I'll mention it here in the interview that I teach at an undergraduate seminar at Yale about famous trials. Had, and, and at my most recent class, I said to them, you need to read all of you this book, Seen and Unknown. Wow. And we touched base on a little bit and immediately they were fascinated by it. So not just my students need to read it, everybody needs to read it. But just, just to, to give you a little testimonial here. Uh, Todd, let's talk about the structure a little bit. You essentially focus on on four episodes, if you will. Now, there's a lot of conversation about so many others within this, but um, talk a little bit about that that structuring and why those four. Well, we chose the four, which uh, uh, roughly outline the chapters of the book, um, uh, to represent something about the unique relationship of technology, race, and America. And each of them has this sort of long sort of tentacles and roots that go back into usually into the 19th century. Um, but they, they involve the way that we have learned about race and the way that we are learning about race now um, uh, through technology. So even if you go back to the 19th century, one of the ways in which um, the, the uh, stories of, of, of lynching were, were revealed by Ida B. Wells, for instance, the, the crusading journalist, who black journalist who was amazingly courageous in terms of showing how, um, uh, how rampant the, uh, the uh, lynching was of, of black, um, black people uh, in the 19th century, uh, the use of the photograph which was uh, um, incredibly important to showing the, the barbaric nature of, of lynching and to prove that these weren't just stories that were being made up, that was true that there, were, there was lynching going on and that it was rampant throughout the South. It's interesting you mentioned that and, and you talk about the power of, of the, the photographs and, and you'll, we'll talk some more about the, the cell phones, but I remember one line in the book and I think I get it right, we're talking about a, a, a killing is an instant and a lynching is a performance. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just to add one, one more thing on that, I mean, just think about that with respect to um, uh, George Floyd, because one of the things that we note in the book is that George Floyd is, is a different kind of 
uh, experience for the American people, for anyone around the world, because it was it was not just an instant death. It was a drawn out. Uh, it was essential lynching. I mean, because it occurred over a period of time It had both the quality of time and the quality of stillness, because the image itself was was uh, unmoving. It was a man dying and we witnessed it uh, through video, but it was almost like a still image at the same time. Let me, Mark, let me ask you about something, and then I'm going to get into some of the specifics of this. But one of the things um, in, the, in the introduction that you both write about is that the, you know, the cell phone certainly going to be looked at as a defining moment in the history of communications, but also your theory that also the cell phone will be look, like, looked at as a defining moment in the history of racial injustice and racial inequality. Why do you think that that will be so? I think that it represents uh, one, a democratizing move. <clears throat> Suddenly people who were unable to access traditional media outlets, people who were unable to publicly narrate their own experiences, or people who simply weren't believed when they did, uh, are now suddenly able to say, hey, look at what's happening to us. I mean. Do we know who George Floyd is absent the cell phone camera, absent the, 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 the video footage that's captured from, from, from this phone? Do we know who he is? Do we believe the story? Or is he another person who resisted arrest and died of a drug overdose, according to police records, for example? You know, um, these are the kinds of questions that we can't ever fully answer. But when we look at history, when we look at uh, the number of police involved killings that go sort of unprosecuted, particularly when there isn't video, when there's not dashboard camera, when there's not body camera, when there's not footage, uh, we can make some sort of reasonable guess. And so in many ways, this gives this empowers everyday people to not just tell their own stories, but it also serves it, it serves the purpose of maybe a protective function. They're able to say, look, maybe with this camera out, the world will move differently. Maybe when I pull this camera out, they won't shoot me. Maybe when I pull this camera out or somebody in the crowd pulls it out, they'll be less likely to keep their knee in my neck for over nine minutes. But then the second thing, which I think we get out throughout the book in a more subtle way and a really important way is that it's in some ways represents the end of innocence. And, and, and the end of uh, purported innocence in a lot of ways. You can't pretend you didn't know. You know, it's not as if people had never heard about violence against people in the streets by police. It's not as if people didn't understand that the George Floyds of the world experienced police violence in very particular ways. But when you were forced, as Todd said, to look at this long protracted killing, this state execution that has the, the chilling power of a still photo, but the enduring quality of a lengthy video, when you're looking at that and you're watching that and you're the person in a, in a so-called flyover state that doesn't think about what's going on in inner cities and, 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 always, and has a reason why those killings may have happened and, and they're giving the benefit of the doubt to the officer and they're doing all the things that many of us do. Suddenly, when you watch that video, you can't pretend you didn't know. You, no mm -hmm. one's hands are clean then. Do we, and that raises an interesting point. I, I was struck by the fact that during the jury selection process, and I spent years as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney, so I've seen it on both. I prosecuted police misconduct, and I've defended people who were involved in police misconduct. Um, I, I was struck by the fact that that a number of, several of the potential jurors in the criminal trial of Derek Chauvin for the, the killing of George Floyd said that they had not watched the video. I remember one woman in particular said, I could not bring myself to do that. A, 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 a woman of color, if I remember correctly, 
So the question is, do we as citizens have a duty to look? Do we have a responsibility to, to watch these things, to watch, you know, if you look at what you're talking about, to watch the video from Kenosha, Wisconsin, to watch the video from Charlottesville, um, to watch the video from Ahmaud Arbery, to watch the video from George Floyd. Do we have a duty as citizens to look? What do you guys think about that? You know, it's interesting you say that because the, the woman who, who who you reference, it wasn't that that she wasn't aware of what had happened on the video. There was a collective viewing of the video that happened by the society. I mean, I don't know that we need to all sit down and do our due diligence by, you know, every citizen needs to sit and watch the video, but every citizen needs to know that the video was there and what it represents, that it represents as a, a form of truth. That's imperative, I do think. That's a really important distinction that Todd's making there. And part of why I think that distinction is important is because there's a significant um, power that these videos have to persuade people and to turn the wheels of justice, sure. But they also can be, they can wear on our spirits. They can wear on our psyches. You know, as a Black person in America, you know, I don't necessarily want to turn on TV and see people who look like me being killed all the time. And, and many races, many people don't uh, see people who look like them executed on television all the time by the state. And so there's a way that, you know, when I have to, con con when we had to continually watch Rodney King be beaten in the 90s, or we had to continually watch a knee in George Floyd's neck, um, or we had to repeatedly watch Eric Garner get choked out, that that, that can also have a, a, a kind of, uh, a, a, not just detrimental, but, but, but maybe even traumatic, it can leave a lingering trauma uh, to us. And in some ways, it can maybe even objectify our bodies in such a way that we become inured to it, you know, that suddenly people aren't as outraged. Yeah, does it, does it dilute the impact? Does it dilute the impact? If you're yeah, seeing yeah, I was going to say, I think it kind of numbs us to it after, at a certain point. And this, we were seeing this happening in school shootings too, frankly. Oh, there's another school shoot. You know, um, it's not, it's not when it's something, it's, it's an odd relationship between the rare and the common. The, the, one of the powerful things about the George Floyd video is, is that it was so compelling, but also it was so compelling because it showed us that this has been going on for a long time. This just only is the representation of it that we have now. I mean, no one believes that George Floyd was a rare instance. I mean, that this 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 history of, of police violence goes way, way back through our history. But that it was so it's, it's commonality is what part of its power, but it's rare, rareness was also part of its power in that we, we actually saw it and when seeing it, we don't want to see it too often because it then begins to numb the power of it. Let me let me stay with George Floyd for a moment and, and that chapter or that part, the first part of the book. And you start that chapter, first chapter, um, with these words. And, and it's it's you call it chapters called spectacle of death. Hmm. And the words that you start with are it's a simple question. Why? Tell me what what that all means. What do we mean by why? And what do we think the answer is when we're talking about George Floyd and the spectacle of death? Mark, how about you? I'll start with the, the spectacle part. I mean, it, it's, you know, Todd talked about, uh, and I think you you spoke to it as well, uh, the lynching. Uh, part of what made lynchings so um, vicious in, in their impact wasn't just the destruction and the killing of a body. That was certainly significant, but it was also 
the kind of spectacle, or as we say in the book, the event that it becomes, right? It's it's a performance that it becomes is the language we use. And the spectacle of the performance has an impact, not just on the person killed or even their immediate family, but on the entire community. When, you know, lynchings were an American pastime. When people are watching it and making postcards and, 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 and it becomes this entire spectacle, it, that says something about our, not just our race relation, but how we understand and conceptualize black bodies or the capacity of black people to be human. Um, and it also sends a message to the rest of the, the community that looks like the person hanging from the tree. And so it's, it's no small thing. And, and, and for me, in a lot of ways, George Floyd's death, the reason why it's like a lynching is not just because there's a kind of extrajudicial uh, piece of this. There's a way that the police officers become judge, juries, and executioners in these contexts, whether they intend to or not. But there's also the piece that there are bystanders. And there aren't just local bystanders. There are national bystanders and now international bystanders who are watching what happens to George Floyd and his body and his life as he screams for his mother, as the police have a, as a police officer has a knee on his neck and as the other officers watch and do nothing. So for me, that kind of spectacle uh, needs to be unpacked. We need to understand it, not just for what happened again in the interpersonal and minute details of what happens from the moment he walks in that store with that, with that uh, uh, ostensibly counterfeit bill, but also we need to unpack what it means for us to even have the possibility for for a moment like that. And we have to understand what it means for the nation who had to witness it, or as Todd said, who may not have watched it per se, but knows that that death sequence happened. Todd, what do you think then when, when you say simple question, why? Mm. You know, what, what's the answer to that? Well, I think we're alluding why we, I, I, I think it's, it's a powerful question because it has multiple meanings and that we explore them throughout the book. Why, of course, the most immediate uh, meaning is that why, as a society, do we tolerate, why does this happen uh, in our midst, um, the, the killing of, of someone for uh, a, in this brutal fashion for a, over a, a counterfeit bill while he cries out for his mother, as Mark just said. Um, but also, why does this particular video at this particular moment have the kind of power that it has? And, and the nature of technology is that it can serve multiple purposes. The same piece of video, the same still photograph can, can, be, can be seen from its framing um, uh, differently. I mean, we, we alluded to the, the, the photograph, or Mark alluded to the spectacle of, of death that, was, um, that attended the uh, lynchings in the South. Um, and they were enormous spectacles. I mean, bodies were harvested for souvenirs. I mean, it's the, the horrific nature of it is is difficult for a moral person to comprehend. But those same photographs that were taken of the lynchings were the ones that Ida B. Wells published to be able to show that lynchings were barbaric and that they should be not tolerated in civil society. The same photographs. Uh, now think about that. So you have than the, the filming of George Floyd. And we, we have a, an initial reaction. And then we have the counter reaction in which people began to say, many you know, sort of right-wing political commentators were saying, well, you know, all right, he's, he, maybe he shouldn't have died, but you know, he, was, uh, he, he was a petty criminal and he uh, had, a, had a track record. He was a drug addict. He had all these things as if to justify it. Now we're gonna frame it differently. Mm -hmm. 
what happens with technology? We know, and and in part of it's human because we we don't want to believe that we are uh, we could be that barbaric that we could we could watch uh, or uh, an entire neighborhood could watch. People were out watching on the street as as um, Chauvin had his knee in, in George Floyd's neck. Nine minutes. I mean, God bless the man who kept on yelling out, you know, um, you're you know, sort of a, a, a insults to to the to the police officers there to say to tr- draw attention to it. But no one moved to stop it. That's part of the problem with the other police officers, right, was that they didn't move to stop it. So, you know, looking at, at the nature of that piece of video, are we going to learn from it? Or are we going to recraft our own image, our, our understanding of it in a way that becomes more palatable to us, either because we some on some level believe that he deserved it, as people on, on a certain political spectrum would have us believe, or, or because we just want to move on. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. We, we've moved on so much through American history, through these kinds of uh, uh, atrocities that I mean, it, it, we have now the tools to bring our attention to this, to focus our attention on this. Let's use them to that purpose. You talk in the book about this, the notion of, of racial justice and progress and regression and progress and regression throughout the course of our history. Let me ask you something else. I, I mentioned the title of the book, Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. Let's talk social media for a moment. And, and we've talked now about the role that, that the cell phone and that video has played. We all know that you know, without the, the 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 neighbor who taped Rodney King, eventually we know we got convictions of two of the police officers. Most people will say that never would have happened. Rodney King probably would have been sent back to jail for resisting arrest. Uh, we know, again, we talked about George Floyd. Ahmaud Arbery, uh, the prosecutor, wasn't even moving on that case until the video shows up a number of months later. So talk about the role that video played, the helpful role that video. But how about social media? And, and how about uh, the... the the onslaught, let's call it that, maybe that's a fair term, of, of falsehoods that come from social media. Are, are you concerned at the role, about the role that social media could play in, in pushing, pushing us into a regression, if you will, in terms of social justice? Mark, what do you think? I, I am at all moments worried about the possibility of social media pushing us in the wrong direction. And the latest uh, Twitter news uh, has done nothing to make me feel any less uneasy. Uh, when you have a space like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, there's a way that we can immediately seize upon the kind of democratic dimensions of it. Everybody can talk. Everybody can offer their worldview. Everybody can offer their perspective. And that, there's something incredibly exciting about that, something quintessentially American about that. Uh, the downside is that Anybody can offer their own facts. Anybody can talk. Anybody can share their own stuff. And so uh, as we talk about in the book, there's a way that it's not enough to simply have footage. It's not enough to just post a video clip. It's not enough to just have a movement or a hashtag or whatever. the, The who, what, when, where, and why matter. The narration of the Kyle Rittenhouse video uh, matters. I, I don't care how live and raw it looks. It's the storytelling behind it. It's where the camera chooses to pan. It's what we choose to focus on, who we choose to identify that matters. In the same way, you know, an online movement can focus on a particular person or a particular event. It can obsess about that event at, at, at the exclusion of a whole bunch of other events that would give it context and texture. And so, you know, social media for me is an extraordinary site of possibility and an extraordinary site of opportunity to bring people together, to push movements together. 
but it's also a very dangerous space that can allow misinformation and disinformation to spread. Uh, and it can, in, in some ways, even be corrosive. I, I like to say uh, that some one of the problems with, with spaces like Twitter and Instagram is that it takes people who should be close together uh, and pulls them apart, right? You could be sitting with your significant other on the couch, each on your, or with your family at dinner, you know, each of you on your respective iPhones talking to, talking across the world and you shouldn't be together, but you're out in this digital space separate. But it also takes people who should have nothing to do with each other. You know, I'm arguing with some guy in his mom's basement, of, of, you know what I mean, about Antifa, you know, when I, I shouldn't, this shouldn't even be a conversation we should be having, but it can bring people together and forge unlikely and really dangerous alliances. It can take people uh, who don't have access to certain types of information and give it to them, but it's bad information, it's wrong information. And that can mobilize people in ways that lead to them going down to a protest with a gun in their hand. It can lead to people marching with tiki torches. This is this is the stuff that we have to be very careful of. Yeah. Got a minute, about a minute and a half left. Let me ask you both quick, a quick answer if you can. You In the introduction, you write to the book, may seeing bring learning and learning bring justice. Uh, each of you real quickly, Mark, I'll start with you. Are you optimistic that that may well be happening for us now? I won't say optimistic. Optimism sort of suggests like that things will just work out in the end. I'll say I'm not optimistic, but I'm, as the blues singers, I'm not optimistic, but I'm full of hope. You know, I think the possibilities there. Yeah. Todd, what do you think? Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, I I think vigilance is remains the the the, the most uh, guarded value we need to appreciate. Um, we 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 cannot take anything for granted. I think we have e- enormously powerful tools. We need to understand the vocabulary of those tools, and we need to use them to the purposes of justice. I think if if you look at this and the notion of vigilance and full of hope. Uh, I think are, are wonderful messages to take from this. Once again, the book is titled Seen and Unseen Technology, Social Media and the Fight for Racial Justice. I said this before, but it, it's just a, a marvelous book. Um, it is it is so informative, uh, so evocative, um, and it, it gets us focused literally and figuratively on the issues that we need to focus on. So Mark Lamont Hill, uh, Todd Brewster, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. A a pleasure connecting with the both of you, and we'll look forward to talking with you again in the future. Both take care now. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right.